And what we've been doing this Advent season is we've just been reliving and walking back through the Christmas story. Um, I sometimes joke with some of the guys when we're planning these services. For, for those of us that are Christians, um, originality is not our number one goal. We have a story that we've been given to us by God, and we get to re-look through that story again this Christmas season. So we walked through the angelic announcement to Mary, and we walked through the announcement also to Joseph, and then last week Kevin brought us through the actual birth of Jesus, and this morning we get to walk through the story where the angel announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds and along with the shepherds to all of us. So I'm going to start just by reading through our passage. If you have a Bible, it's in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 8 and read through verse 14. So you can follow along if you have a Bible or you can follow along on the bulletin inserts. Um, And if you don't have either of those, you can follow along because the words will be up here on the screen as I read. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. And lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is God's word. Let's take a pause and pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you that you've given us something worth celebrating. Thank you that not only at Christmas time, but that at all times, you've given us a reason. You've given us a reason to gather together on Sundays and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You've given us a reason to gather together at Christmas time to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And you've always given us hope in whatever circumstances we're in. We thank you that we can be together as a church family and celebrate this. Father, we thank you for those who are here um, with us right now who are not normally with us and that we pray uh, a blessing on them and on all of us as we experience this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So August 14th, 1945 ended up being a day of great celebration, not just in the United States, but in many countries all over the world, because at about 7 p.m. on August 14th, 1945, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, read to some advisors and to some reporters in the room that Japan had unconditionally surrendered and World War II was at final, at an end. And uh, President Truman was talked about as kind of a stoic person, not showing a lot of emotion. But it said that he read the words of the surrender very calmly to the group. And then at the end of his reading, his face broke into a great smile. And I was just thinking about it, trying to imagine what would that, what would that be like for anybody during that time, but specifically for a president carrying that burden. And the great relief that came and the great joy that came 
Um, and also, August 14th was President Truman's 61st birthday. So best birthday ever for him. And uh, the, the obvious thing to all of us is that after he read the news to the advisors and to the reporters who were there, they didn't simply sit down to enjoy the good news. They immediately spread the news to everybody. This was something that needed to be announced. This was news that needed to get out there because it wasn't just good news for the president or good news for the advisors or the reporters. It was good news for the entire country. There was going to be relief that there was finally peace. There was going to be joy at the end of hostilities. And most of all, there was going to be celebration at all the reunions that were about to happen. Because the husbands and the brothers and the sons and the fathers and the uncles and the grandsons, they were all coming home. And the entire nation celebrated once the news went out. And people in all the cities poured out into the streets. And you've probably seen pictures in particular at Times Square in New York where people poured into the streets and you had total strangers hugging and kissing and playing music and eating food and celebrating that peace had broken out. And one of the things I like to imagine is maybe there was some guy that had just worked a double shift, got home to his apartment building and conked out, and then suddenly woke up to all the noise, stuck his head out the window and said, what in the world is going on down there? And if that happened, there would have been about a thousand people, whoever would have heard it would have immediately turned up to him and shouted the news. Peace is here. Peace has broken out. In fact, the people celebrating wouldn't have wanted anybody to miss out on the news because it wasn't just good news for the politicians and it wasn't just good news for the soldiers. It was good news for the entire country. And when you have news like that, it's not meant simply to be enjoyed. It's meant to be announced. Peace had broken out. And we've already talked about this some in the weeks previous to this, but peace broke out that first Christmas day. There was a much greater breaking out of peace. In fact, that's going to be part of the announcement that we read through that the angel gives to the shepherds. Peace is here. Peace has broken out. And that's why when we talk about the Christmas story, Christmas is not meant to be something that's simply enjoyed. Christmas is something that is meant to be announced. And for most of us, this Christmas season is not the first time we've experienced the announcement. We've heard it announced before. We've seen it in art. We've experienced it in scripture reading. Maybe our parents passed along to us the story. But every time that we gather during this Advent series, we are not simply enjoying this announcement. We are announcing it. We are sharing the news with one another because at the core of the Christmas story is not about something that we're invited to do. It's about something that God did. And we celebrate and announce that reality. And one of the other reasons why we announce it is because it's not just good news for a few. It's good news for all people. It impacts every single one of us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are just going to walk through the announcement. The announcement that we've already read where the angel comes to the shepherds. And it's kind of in three segments. I'll tell you this for those of you who like to follow along and kind of know where we are. We're going to start just by talking about the scope of the announcement. How this is an announcement with a wide reach. 
And then after we talk about the scope, we'll talk about the specifics. We'll talk about what was the detail of what was actually announced to the shepherds and through the shepherds to all of us. And then finally, we get to end with the celebration of the announcement. So we start in verse eight, we start with the scope of the announcement, and it begins with a very ordinary sentence. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And and just as a note, the nearby is nearby uh, Bethlehem, because we just read the story last week where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, for us, because we know the Christmas songs and we've had the nativity sets and we're familiar with the story, when we read about shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, we kind of get excited. We know big things are about to happen. But just think about this. For first century Israelites, verse eight isn't telling us anything of significance. This is simply saying that a bunch of blue collar workers were finishing up their day. These were very ordinary people. There's no hint here in verse eight that something big is about to happen. They don't know all the songs that we know today. This is just a normal occurrence. And shepherds were not the celebrated members of society. So they get prime position for us. They get to show up as figures in the the nativity scene. These were not sought after jobs. This was one of those dirty jobs. Dealing with animals is not fun. And he didn't need a lot of education, so they certainly weren't prime members of society. And not only were they not prime members of society, they were looked down upon. And you can say, well, that's not fair just because they're doing kind of a blue collar, dirty job. That's not fair that they were looked down upon. And yet part of it was that they were looked down upon because it wasn't a desirable profession. But part of the reason why they were looked down upon is because shepherds had a reputation of being kind of shady specifically of being kind of like, oh, that's your sheep? I could have sworn that was my sheep. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize they all look alike. I just thought that was my sheep. Shepherds were not allowed to testify in court. That's how bad their reputation was. So here's the deal. And you could say, oh, that's not fair. Some of it was kind of earned. Some of it was not crazy that they thought these things about shepherds. So we start off this announcement with, there were these normal, shady, blue-collar guys finishing up their work for the day. But we all know something great is about to happen because we get to verse nine and it says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And I know we're all familiar with the stories and with the art. And so we imagine, you know, here are the shepherds and there's always three. I don't know, just for the sake of, there's three shepherds. For some reason, we like that idea. So there's these shepherds hanging out and then the angel appears in the sky. And it's possible that that's what happened. But by the actual wording in the Greek here, that's probably not what it was. Probably what happened was the angel appeared right next to them. And I love the, the thought of this because... Uh, for Karina and I, our youngest son, David, probably a couple of years ago, he's six now, but when he was four, he had this habit of following us without us knowing he was following us. And, uh, and eventually he stopped. And I think it's because of what I'm about to tell you. But, um, and, and, you know, so he's this quiet little guy. And so I'd be going through the house and I'd go into the kitchen and I'd open up the refrigerator and grab something out of there. And then I would turn around and I'd knock him right over because I was like, whoa, no, David, David, right there. Just sort of like nothing, and there he is. And uh, that's probably why he stopped following us around, because he was tired of being knocked down. 
And that's just what I imagine here with these shepherds, that they're just, they're these guys hanging out, end of the day, yeah, how did it go for you? Oh, this was frustrating, I think I got all the sheep, they're complaining about their wives, they're talking about their work, and suddenly, boom, angel right there, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This is a sudden, frightening scene. Heaven and earth are coming together in this supernatural moment. And so not surprisingly, it says, they were terrified. This is the normal response to an angelic appearance. This is why we got some great Christmas art and some not so great Christmas art. Because this angel was not a baby in a diaper with a bow and arrow. This angel was a warrior worshiper. And if you read the descriptions, if, if anybody wants to do this, go back to Isaiah 6. And we don't know that these were the same kind of angels, but go back to Isaiah 6 and read the description of the angel there. And just imagine if you encountered that angel, you would be terrified. It's a frightening scene. Suddenly heaven and earth have come together in this moment. And in verse 10, we get the beginning of what the angel says to them. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. The same thing that the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah when he appeared to him in Luke chapter one to tell him, you're gonna have a son and he's gonna be John the Baptist. The same thing that the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he appeared to her in Luke chapter one and said, you're gonna have a baby boy and he's gonna be named Jesus. The first words of the angel are, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And we already got a hint of this because this announcement is to shepherds. And if shepherds get in on this, everybody gets in on this. It wasn't an announcement to the king and it wasn't an announcement to the rich or to the priests or to the Jewish leaders of the time. It's an announcement to the absolutely average Joe in the day of Israel. And the announcement is for all people. Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And, and by the way, just as a note, in case you have a study Bible or, or you're gonna look this up later, there's debate about whether when the angel says all the people, if he's saying all the people, how we would think about it, all nations, or if he's specifically saying all of the people of Israel, all of God's people. There's debate about what specifically he's saying here. But when you read the entire Gospels in the New Testament, what there is no debate about is the fact that this truly is good news that causes great joy for all people. Nobody is left out of this good news, which is good because we all know it's possible for there to be news that's good for some and not good for others. When I lived in Oregon, I'm a big Laker fan. Um, and uh, when I lived in Oregon, all my friends were Blazer, Trailblazer fans, because that's their basketball team up there. Uh, that's kind of all they've got, so they're really devoted to the Trailblazers, um, and they really, really don't like the Lakers. Basically, everybody outside of here really, really dislikes the Lakers, um, because they're great. And, uh, and anyway, <laughs> I had a friend that had season tickets, and so he decided he was going to bring me to a Laker-Blazer game, because he knew I was a big Laker fan, and it was back when Kobe Bryant was on the team, and so he went to the game and I'm, you know, believe it or not, I'm a very polite person at these games. I cheer for my team, but not in a way that's obnoxious, especially when I'm a visit, in a visiting stadium. I'm like, no, I'm going to be polite. I'll cheer, but I'll cheer politely. And uh, the, the game wasn't going well for, for me. Uh, the, the, the Blazers were winning the entire game um, by double digits a lot of the times. And then as, as the game started to get towards the end, the Lakers started to chip away and get closer 
and closer. And with about five seconds left, they were only down two. And they gave the ball to... Yeah, they gave the ball to Kobe, of course. And Kobe was dribbling around at the top of the key as the clock was, was winding down. And he lifted up and he shot the ball and the ball hit the front of the rim and then dripped right in. <laughs> tying the game. And, and again, I'm a, I'm a polite cheerer. And so I did something like this. Because when that ball dripped into the basket, it was good news for like 50 of us in the stadium. (laughs) We were so excited. Perfect strangers are hugging like we're brothers. It was good news for about 50 of us. And it was really bad news for about 15,000 people because they all knew now that the game was going to overtime, they knew what was going to happen. They knew the Lakers were going to ride that momentum, which they did. And they knew the Lakers were going to win the game, which they did. Good news for 50, bad news for 15,000. The good news that the angel is announcing is good news that causes great joy for all the people. Everybody is in on this celebration. Everybody is invited to the party. It's not just the wealthy. It's not just the prominent. It's not just the young, not just the old, not just the men, not just the women, not just those who are employed or those who are not employed. It is all people. In fact, let let me just go further. It's good news that causes great joy, not just for the moral. One of the powerful things that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is he gives sort of a threefold description. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he gives a three part description of the kinds of people that Jesus came to give his life for. And it ends up coming like this. Jesus came to give his life for helpless, godless sinners. So you might be here this morning and thinking, all right, well, so this is good news that causes great joy, but probably just for people that have made pretty good decisions and have been faithful to their spouses and haven't committed crimes that have landed them in prison. But what about me? What about those of us that have kind of made a a, a wreck of our lives in different ways? What about those of us that have a police record? What about those of us who have ruined our marriages? What about those of us that have to register in some way when we go to a new home or to a new city? Is, Is this good news that causes great joy? This is good news that causes great joy for all the people. So here's the question. Here's the question for all of us. Are you a person? All right, you're in. That's all you need to qualify for this good news that causes great joy. If you are a person, you are invited to the party. The scope of this announcement is that it's good news that causes great joy for all the people. And we all kind of know what it is. Well, we're chomping at the bit. All right, good news that causes great joy for all the people. Tell us what it is. Let's get into the specifics. And so let's get into the specifics in verse 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, and we just read this story last week, today in Bethlehem, a savior has been born to you. And just just even that last part, to you. 
To you shepherds, you're in on this. The Savior has been born to the people of Israel, fulfilling all the promises. That's why he says just in a moment, he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And you go through all these prophecies in the Old Testament, whether it's Isaiah or Micah or going even all the way back to the early parts of the Bible where Abraham has promised that he's going to have a descendant and that all nations will be blessed through that descendant. He is the Messiah. He is the one fulfilling all promises. And not only is he the Messiah, he is the Lord, which is not how you would describe a prophet. It's normally how you describe God. He is the Messiah. He is going to come and he's not just going to be any guy. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. But go back because in the middle of this verse is really the key word to the entire announcement and to the entire passage. And that's that he says the word savior. He is a savior. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. And Jesus is many things. But when the angel is announcing his presence in the world, the primary way that he describes him is that he is a savior. Now, there are a lot of things we could say about Jesus. And let's just be honest we're more comfortable with some of these ways to describe Jesus than we are with others. There's some ways to describe Jesus that, that basically could make us still feel all right about ourselves and other ones that really humble us. Like you can describe Jesus as a teacher. And is Jesus a teacher? Yeah, absolutely. Teaches constantly. Jesus is a teacher. And if you see Jesus as just a teacher, here's what you get to do. You get to keep your pride because you can say, I can learn from Jesus. I can learn from a teacher. I can, I can read the different things that he says and the different commands that he gives and the different things that he says about God and about humanity and about the world. I, I can learn those things and I can try to put them into practice. So Jesus being a teacher requires a little bit of attention from us, but, but not deep transformative humility. We can see him as a teacher. We can also see him as an example, which he certainly is and which the authors of the Bible say that he is especially when it comes to suffering and handling suffering. He is an example to us. But once again, you can look at Jesus as an example, and it doesn't necessarily transform your life. It just means you have one other person to look up to and to emulate in some way. Um, By the way, good luck in emulating him. You can see Jesus as a guide, which is kind of like a teacher, but you can say, all right, sometimes I'm in sticky situations and it's confusing and I don't know exactly how to handle it. So I'm going to look to Jesus and he's going to guide me through. He's going to help me to navigate the tricky situations of life so that I handle them well. And that's good also. But if you look at Jesus and all you see is a teacher or an example or a guide, you are missing the core of who he is because at the core, Jesus is a savior which means the primary thing that we need from him is not an example and it's not some words of wisdom and not some guidance for life. The primary thing that we need from him is we need him to rescue us. And if you're wondering why does he need to rescue us, we already heard about this a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Gary brought us through the announcement to Joseph because the angel says to him, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. At the end of the day, this announcement that a savior has been born is in a way an indictment of every single human being because it says that we stand condemned before the God of the universe. We are on the road to hell and the only way we're getting off the road to hell is if we are rescued and God sent a rescuer. 
and you can maintain your pride and still look to Jesus as a teacher or an example or a guide, but you can't maintain your pride if you're going to look to him as a savior. This is why I think that the biblical teaching that as human beings, we are condemned before God, I think it is currently in our culture is, is the biblical teaching that most flies in the face of what we think of ourselves. We mostly think of ourselves as pretty good people. We've got flaws, we've got quirks, we all have things that we need to work on, but the idea that we've done something to warrant hell, it just doesn't seem right. It just seems like too much. And, and here's what I want to say, because I think that no doubt there's some of you in here that are thinking exactly that. Maybe even some of you who are Christians are kind of thinking that. You say, well, I, I know I'm not perfect, but it's hard for me to get my arms around the idea that I really deserve hell. I, I haven't killed people. You know, I haven't even been arrested. I've been pretty good in my life. I've been a pretty good citizen. Why this harsh reality? And, and here's what I want to explore for a few minutes. Many of us in this room may feel like we have at least a decent amount of righteousness. Sorry, we've been pretty good people. I have a decent amount of righteousness. And what I want to suggest is that your righteousness is likely much more based on circumstances than on character. And the reason I say that is this. Put in the wrong situation, you likely would have done things that you wouldn't even believe you were capable of. Because this is what normal people have done throughout the history of humanity. Let me give a couple of examples to, to kind of bring us there. Some of you will probably remember a few years ago, um, Lance Armstrong. It came out that Lance Armstrong, the great cyclist who'd won all the, the Tour de France titles, um, had been using performance-enhancing drugs while he was winning all of these Tour de France titles. And it was a scandal, and it was all over the news, and there was a lot of outrage. How could he do this thing? Um, and and when, when all this was going on, one of the things, he was, he was obviously stripped of the titles because he hadn't won them fairly. And there was speculation, well, well what should we do? And some people thought, well, well, here's what you should do. Um, he shouldn't get credit. And now we should give the title of the victory for each of those years to the person who came in second because they would have won if it wasn't for him cheating. But they ran into a problem because the person who finished second had also been using performance-enhancing drugs, as had the person who finished third and fourth and fifth, and, and in at least one of these years, in most of these years, but in at least one of these years, they had to go all the way down to number 28. Now, here's the deal with number 28. Number 28 was the highest ranked person that we weren't certain had cheated. Now, just, did you hear that? We're not certain that he didn't cheat. We're just not certain that he did cheat. And we can look at that and suddenly we might look at this a little bit differently. And what I'm not saying is it was okay for everybody to cheat because everybody was doing it. It was wrong for all of them to cheat. But what I do want us to take in is this. If we're looking at that and saying, I would have never. No, you probably would have. All of us probably would have because most of those normal people were doing that and those were not exceptionally evil people. Now, you might hear that and say, all right, fine, I guess I kind of get it, but e even that, even all those guys who doped, all those guys who did that and cheated, that doesn't really deserve hell. I mean, that's not that bad of a thing to do. And maybe you're right, but that principle applies to much darker things also. Uh, I had a professor in seminary that had a connection with, um, with a Bible college in Rwanda. Um, and, and even every time we talk about Rwanda, we immediately think of the genocide that happened there. 
And he was there for a visit um, at some point, um, not long, but, but a little while after the genocide um, had happened in Rwanda. And he was part of a ceremony for all these young men who'd been trained for ministry and they were celebrating them and kind of sending them out as pastors. And then the, the Rwandan leaders did something kind of unique at the ceremony, something that we don't do a lot in the United States. And what they did is they gave all of these sort of graduates an opportunity for public confession if any of them had committed sexual sin, if any of them had committed adultery. I think, wow, that's a big deal to just have a moment for public confession. And my my professor was really struck by that. He thought, wow, that's a really amazing thing to do. That's really powerful. And he he talked to the Rwandan leaders and said, I think that that's a really powerful thing that you did, but I want to suggest that we do it one more time. And this time, instead of simply giving the opportunity for public confession, if anybody's committed adultery, we give the opportunity for public confession if any of these men were involved in some way in the slaughter that happened, if they were involved in some way in the genocide. And the Rwandan leaders basically said, well, we can't do that because nobody's hands are clean. Now, here's why I tell that story. Because these men who had just got their seminary degree were not especially evil men. They had gone along with the flow of what was going on in that time. And that by no stretch of the imagination excuses the violence that happened. But it should make every single one of us who looks at slaughters and genocides and say, I would never pause and say, nope, you probably would have. If you were in Germany at the wrong time, you probably would have. If you were a soldier at the wrong time, you probably would have. If you were poor at the wrong time, you probably would have. Many of us can look at our lives and say, gosh, we didn't do any of these things. But how much of that is based on the fact that you grew up in a peaceful and happy environment? Given the wrong situation, we are all capable of atrocities. And maybe you just had the good fortune of not being in those bad situations. We, all of us, desperately need a savior. We, all of us, stand condemned, and you know what? God is right. We should stand condemned. And our only hope is a savior. And we even get a little bit of clue about what kind of a savior Jesus is through verse 12. Because the angel says, this will be assigned to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Which, first of all, is just a logistical thing that he's telling the shepherds. He's like, all right, presumably, after I give you this announcement, you're going to go to Bethlehem to find this baby, which is exactly what they did. He says, all right, a lot of babies in Bethlehem, only one in a manger. That's how you know. So just logistically, look for the baby that's in a manger. That's the right baby. But also, just think of how he just described this Savior. This Savior is lying in a manger which means from the very first moment that Jesus appeared, he appeared with humility and suffering. It's a sign of the fact that he was willing to be a servant even to the point of death on a cross. To us, a savior is born, which is the best news that we could get because that's exactly what we need. And that savior is gonna be a savior who suffers for us and even gives his life for us. But before the angel leaves, there is a celebration. So one angel appeared, and then suddenly a bunch of angels appear. So suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And and we might not see it as clearly here in the English, but, but when they're praising God, they give a parallel statement. They say two things, and they kind of run parallel. They say glory, 
and peace. And glory is in the highest heaven and peace is on earth. And glory is to God and peace is to men. So we've got glory to God in this event, in this Christmas event where God had sent his son, he receives glory. His glory is shown not just when he shows his unbelievable power, but it's shown when he shows his almost unbelievable love that he pours out for us. Dane just read it earlier for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. God receives glory not just when we respond to the miraculous that he did, but when we respond to his giving sacrificial love. Glory to God in the highest heaven. This is why when we get together as a church, it's not simply about us getting something out of the sermon or feeling good in the time of worship. It is about us gathering together to recrown God as the king of the universe and give him the glory he deserves. Only God deserves glory, which by the way, just as a side note, is one of the reasons why people were so mystified and miffed when Jesus talked about his own glory. They were like, your glory? Only God gets glory. Why are you talking about your glory? Only God gets glory. And Jesus was like, right, (laughs) think about it. (laughs) Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace has broken out. But if we go back to 1945 and think about all those celebrations breaking out on the streets, there's probably a little bit of sadness for us because we know, well, that wasn't final peace. There's more wars, there's more sadness, there's more death. That wasn't the end of all hostilities. And we can go all the way back to the story of Jesus and say, well, that wasn't the end of hostilities either. I mean, all this peace on earth talk, that wasn't the end of war. That wasn't a final peace. But you know what? The peace that Jesus brings is a peace that is here right now and a peace that will culminate one day. One day, Jesus and Jesus alone, upon his return, will be the one that brings final peace to this earth. If you're looking at this and you're saying, oh, all right, final, fine, inner peace, I guess that's good, but I want peace. I want the end of hostilities on this earth. Jesus is going to bring that one day. And in the meantime, we live in the much greater reality that the peace that Jesus has brought is peace with God. And the reason we can have inner peace, the reason that we can have peace when chaos is raging around us is because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not our enemy. We are not his enemies. We are adopted into the family because peace has broken out in the most significant conflict that mattered. There is peace between man and God. And if you look at it closely, it says peace to those on whom his favor rests. You might think, well, that's not fair. So some people get peace and other people don't get peace. Well, what it's simply saying is, Those who respond get in on the peace. This is good news of great joy to all people. But not all people are going to take God up on this offer of good news that causes great joy. And and that brings us to a moment where we've got to at least ask this question. How are you responding to this announcement? This announcement whose scope covers all of us, whose specifics is about a savior being born and whose celebration unites heaven and earth and the celebration of peace breaking out. How are you responding? I'll just say for all of us, whether you are the person most opposed to becoming a Christian or whether you're somebody who has walked with Jesus for decades, 
the response that we're invited to give is really the same response. And that is to embrace in the deepest part of ourselves Jesus as our Savior. And I'll start with those of you who are here that, that aren't believers in Jesus, just because I, I always assume there's probably some of you here, um, and, and maybe even closer to Christmas, there's some more of you here that are saying, hey, it's Christmas time, I'll show up at church. Um, and maybe even thought, I'll show up at church because Jesus is a good example. He's a good teacher. He's a good guide. And I could probably use some of that. If you're simply seeing Jesus that way, you're missing the reason why he came. And I want to invite you to embrace Jesus as your savior, as the one you need in order to take away your sins, unite you with God and bring you the hope and the joy that's offered through this Christmas story. I, I want to give an opportunity specifically in this church service because if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, if you are looking to yourself and your own inherent goodness as either what's going to get you into heaven or what's going to get you in good with God, you're trusting in the wrong thing, you're trusting in the wrong person. You need to place your faith in the one and only Savior who can bring you into God's family. And that's done simply through faith. That's done through us coming to the end of ourselves, humbling ourselves before the God of the universe and putting our trust in Jesus. And specifically, if you're somebody that's saying, I, I wanna make this decision today, I wanna make this choice to place my faith in Jesus, the thing I wanna invite you to do, um, in a moment we'll pray and I'm gonna invite you to do something there, but the other thing that I wanna invite you to do is just grab one of the communication cards that's in front of you, mark something on it with your name and with the, the fact that you wanna make a decision to follow Jesus and I will personally follow up with you sometime in the next week to 10 days so that we can walk this journey together. This is not something that's meant to be on your own. This is something that's meant to be with the family of God. But let me also say, because some of you are in here and you're thinking, all right, that, that's good. And I did that. I, I did that two years ago, or I did that five years ago, or I did that 30 years ago. I, I placed my faith in Jesus. Here's the deal. Right now, the same thing goes for you. Embrace Jesus as your savior. Now, let me just ask you some questions about that. Um, if we're believers, we're probably engaged right now in a battle against sin and temptation. But I want you just to think, are you engaged in this battle against sin and temptation because you are desperately trying to prove yourself to God or because you just want more joy in his presence? If you are in a battle with sin, desperately trying to prove to God that you belong with him, you're not living with Jesus as your savior. You're not enjoying the reason why he came you're still living trying to make it on your own. If you're living right now desperately trying to prove yourself to the world by having the best reputation or the most money or by throwing the best Christmas celebration, you're missing why Jesus came as your savior. And if you prayed earlier today and the thought went through your mind, the reason God heard that prayer is because I've been good this week you've missed the reason why Jesus came to be a savior. Because if God heard you, God heard you not because you were good this week, but because 2,000 years ago, Jesus was good. You stand before the God of the universe as his child, not based on your behavior 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, but based on what Jesus has done and what he has done never changes. Stand in the grace and embrace the saving work of Jesus and the peace and the joy that comes with that. Let me pray for us right now. Father, thank you so much 
for the joy that you bring us in this news. Thank you that we can have the relief of knowing that peace has broken out and not because we figured out a way to fix it, but because you fixed it through Jesus. Thank you for sending a savior. And thank you that the savior you sent was your beloved son. There's nothing you will hold back from us. Father, I wanna pray specifically for anyone in here this morning who has never placed their faith in Jesus and wants to do that right now. Father, I pray that you would keep any doubt, any um, temptation, any distraction from keeping them from placing their faith in you. Father, I pray that you would hear their prayers right now as they cry out to you, that you forgive their sins, that you welcome them into the family and that you give them the joy of the savior that you've sent. And Father, I pray that all of us would be shining lights to those around us, not simply because our lives are different, but because we have the joy and the relief of living at peace with you and knowing that nothing will ever change that. Thank you for showing your glory to us. Thank you for sending your son for us. And we pray that this morning and beyond, that the celebration of that in our lives will not die out, but that we will ever presently be living in the joy of what you've done. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 